So here's the question I want to look at together. Um, what do you do? What do you do when the pain just won't go away? What do you do when the pain just won't go away? When it lasts, when it lingers, when it stalks? What do you do? Uh, there in your quotes and notes, I've got a, a quote I want you to look at with me. It's the first one there. It's in, from an article in a journal by uh, you know, Mike Emlett. And this is what he, he writes about this. And it's, it's well worth thinking about. And then he's kind of taking, I want to use this as a springboard. Physical pain is a universal human experience. Everyone has experienced Acute physical pain, the kind of pain that lasts for seconds, minutes, hours, or maybe even days. But some experience chronic pain, the kind of bone-wearying, soul-deadening pain that lasts for weeks, months, or even years. How should we think about the problem of pain? Pain serves us well as a friend who warns us of impending danger. Watch out! The stove is hot. But what do you do when pain becomes a constant, lurking enemy who seems to have no function other than to torture you? Now, he's making some really good points there. In many respect, respects, pain can be a friend, alerting us to when things are wrong. But the reality is sometimes, especially when you're talking about pain in a chronic sense, lasting and lingering and all of that, it's not so much a friend. It's more like a guest in your house that isn't getting the hint as to when it's time to go home. And by the way, and this is where I want to spring off of what Emlet's saying here, and I think he's absolutely right um, in that piece, but um, chronic pain is not just of a physical kind. It can be a, a disappointment that's come into your, your life, you know, some dream, some hope, some plan that you had that's now just, you know, in tatters on, on the floor. And that's not going away. It's chronic. Um, maybe it's, it's uh, an emotion, uh, a relational, emotional distance from someone that you've been close to. And it just doesn't seem to be any way to... To fix it, and it's just it's just there, and it's just like 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 a cloud over over everything, and, and sometimes it's all you can think about, or maybe it's financial, personal financial issues that just you know whether it's not enough income or too many expenses or some toxic combination of the two, and that's not fixing itself, and you're just in it, and it's just a, you know that's the the air in which you're breathing. And not just for a day, but maybe a week, and maybe a month, and maybe a year, or maybe a decade. So what do you do when the pain just won't go away? What we dare not do is commit what C.S. Lewis, and I had to just throw one Lewis quote in here from last week. Um, you dare, we dare not commit what Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery. What J.I. Packer refers to as, uh, as this mentality, um, where the newer is truer, only what is recent is decent, every shift of ground is a step forward, every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. 
chronological snobbery, just assuming that you know you can come up with or what's the latest thing is the best thing. Those are dangerous and foolish assumptions. Here's where I think we need to go. Is it just possible that maybe a really old text might have something to say to this perennial question? It's been around as long as, nearly, nearly as long as man has been on the planet. What do we do when the pain won't go away? The old text is Lamentations, and in particular for this morning, Lamentations chapter 5. And if you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn there now with me. Uh, if you're trying to, to find that, it's just before the, uh, one of the big major prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel. But it, it, it's sandwiched between Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel. Um, it's after the Psalms and, and Isaiah, big landmarks there in your, your Old Testament. Uh, and after Isaiah and Jeremiah, you have Lamentations. And Lamentations chapter 5 is where we are this morning. I'm going to read uh, the 22 verses here and uh, ask you to follow along silently as, as I read. Hear now God's word. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our mourning has been turned to, excuse me, our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you... O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Let's pray. O God, we ask that you would help us to hear and be willing to hear this old text. These words that come from centuries ago, the 6th century B.C., in the ruins of Jerusalem. And though, and we know this at least in our head, and though... Uh, the years have passed and we are many miles from that place and the culture is different. And the customs are so different and so much has 
changed. We know at least in our heads that the, the human condition and the heart's questions have not. And we pray that uh, what we know in our head we would acknowledge in our hearts and we would really, really be able this morning as we come to your word to, to have ears that would, that would hear and be teachable by you, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. So, one last time, let me remind you where we are. What's the historical context of the, the book of, of Lamentations? I've alluded to it already. I just want to be a little bit more explicit now. Um, this is, uh, these are the years following the terrible siege uh, of the, by the Babylonian army of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and uh, the exile of the people. Sixth century B.C., it takes place, the, the siege and the destruction of the temple, 586, 587, then you've got this period of time following. This book itself um, are, is a collection of five poems, five laments, five dirges, really, very much um, re reflecting back on the tragedy of all that had befallen the people and all that once had been and, and what had happened and now where they were. Um, there's a trend line. I don't know that I've mentioned this in the course of this series. There's something of a, of a trend line, a trajectory, I guess you could say. You know, it's kind of like not a straight line. It's kind of like you know, a zigzag, but basically up. Uh, as you're reading through the book of Lamentations, it's, it's beginning with just this utter uh, despair and sense of, of loss and grief, trending gradually. Still that with that as an element mixed in there, but gradually also looking towards seeing light, hope, and prayer for renewal. Which brings us to here towards the end in chapter 5. This is the fifth of these poems. And I know I've said this a time or two, that, that these, uh, these poems are written in what's called an acrostic style. At least the first four. The first four are written in this acrostic style, meaning that each line uh, begins with the, 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 uh, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. If it was, this was written in English, then line one would be written, start with the letter A. Line two would start with the letter B, moving through the 26 letters of the English alphabet. Well, the Hebrew alphabet only has 22 letters, so you've got 22 lines in each of these poems, except for the third one, which is 66, because it's groups of three in each cluster, but it's still the same acrostic pattern. Now, the point behind that, there seems to be a point, it's clearly a lot of work went into this. You've got to think about, you know, in terms of structuring a long poem like this, these laments, there has to be a lot of intentionality, a lot of thought going into that. Why? Why would you do that? Well, there's at least three possibilities, and one would be to aid in memorization. That's a very likely possibility. I'm actually saying this, all three of these are very likely possibilities, and together, in fact. Uh, the second one being to give a full expression of the grief, kind of a, what we would say in, in grief, a lament, pain expressed from A to Z. It's just, it's out, I'm just putting it all out. I'm not holding anything back, all of it. I'm getting it all, getting it all out. At the same time, by doing this in an organized, systematic way, it would seem to have an effect of, of reining in the grief so it just doesn't flow over the banks. Okay, here's the funny thing. 
That's true of the first four. You get to the fifth one of these five laments, and the acrostic pattern's gone, except for the fact there's 22 lines. But as far as that, you know, A, B, C, that's not really the letters, but, you know, from our context, that's not what you're seeing here. It's just the 22 lines. Now, why would that be? Here's why I think it is. And I'm not alone in this. And, and um, I think it's a pretty good explanation. And when you read the content of this fifth poem and compare it to the other four, it would seem to bear this out. And it's this. Time has passed. Time, a little bit of time has passed since the writing of the first four to the fifth one. The siege is over. This is now the time of occupation. The Babylonian army, is they're not just knocking down the walls. The walls are down. The fires are out. And they've taken the place over. And it's a whole new, there's a new sheriff in town. Um, it's not that the pain has gone away, you understand. It's shifted. It's not really lessened. It's just moved. It's changed. It's not so much an, a, a, an acute sort of thing, like when you blast the hammer down on the thumb. It's more like the thumb is now infected. It, it, it's, it's not the sharp pain. It's this deep, dull ache in the bones. Which I think takes us back to the question that I asked from the beginning. What do you do when that pain just won't go away. It's lingering. It's settled in now. It's made a home in your house. What do you do when it just won't go away? Well, here's the answer from our text. You go to God. It won't go, to what, go away. You go to God. When the pain just won't go away, God calls us to come to Him. He calls us to come to Him. Now how? I think we can pick up three things, at least these three things from the text. And that is we begin with taking a hard look. Secondly, we come as we are. And thirdly, we speak our mind. I'm going to unpack those because, you know, taken in isolation, you may get the wrong idea. So we um, take a hard look. We come as we are and we speak our mind. Let's look, look at this. So verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Verses 2 through 18, unpack the disgrace. They, they tell us what's on the, the writer's mind. Um, and what's on the writer's mind is this. We are not to... God is not interested in us looking at our circumstances through rose-colored glasses. He wants us to take a hard look at what's going on and see it for what it is. What is it? What, what does he see, uh, the author here? He sees material poverty, verses uh, 2 through 10. Uh, we have a what really you could describe, you see that in particular with that imagery of, of the foot on the neck or the pursuers at the neck, the yoke on the neck, depending on your translation there in verse 5. Complete subjugation of the people, horrific, cruel oppression such that from an earthly, horizontal standpoint, they have lost everything and they are looking anywhere for help. Egypt, Assyria, whatever it will take, help us. 
They're desperate. Verses 11 through 14, you see gross social injustice. Every group affected and inflicted with this. It's horrific to imagine. And he just briefly expresses some of what's going on. And you think about just what's going on and what the implications are that for a whole society. And it's terrible. It's awful. It's as desperate a situation as could be. Verses 15 through 18, you see utter cultural disintegration. You've got the kingdom has fallen. The monarchy is no more. The capital city is in ruins. The temple has been destroyed. The only occupiers of the temple are jackals. Literally, maybe, quite possibly, figuratively. In any case, it's just scavengers. That's it. That's it. It is an image of utter desolation. It's so bad. It's so bad that a cynic hearing this could say, well, what kind of God is that? I mean, he's obviously too weak to help you or too distant to care. Right? This gives grounds for a cynic to say something like that to which we have to gently respond. You don't understand what's happened. The siege... The destruction, the exile, is actually proof that God does rule over the affairs of men and He is passionately pursuing the hearts of His people because He said this is what was going to happen. And He has simply proven Himself to be, shall I say, terrifyingly faithful. So the, the author here is taking this hard look and laying things out as they are, and I think there's something of that we could learn. To be brave enough to be that honest. Looking at our circumstances, not, not, not spinning, just taking a hard look. Which speaks, of course, against our temptation. Our temptation is to play things down. Oh, it's not that bad. You know, it's, it's okay. It's merely a flesh wound, you Monty Python fans. Um, we, 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 we come to God pretending in prayer. Oh, it's okay. L living spiritually before him in a world of make-believe. I'm fine. You've got a head wound. I'm, I'm fine. You're bleeding out. I'm fine. Um... It also speaks against that temptation just to, to go numb. To just get used to it. And then become okay with it. With how hard it's gotten. With how difficult it is. With how painful it is. With how wrong it is. And just to be okay with it. And just become numb. As though it's, it, that's fine. When the pain won't go away, God is saying, come to me. Come to me. And take a hard look. That's the first thing. The second thing, moving from there. Take a hard look and come as you are. Verses 15 through 18. Whatever that means. Whatever that means, come as you are. In all your mess, come as you are. Verses 15 through 18. I want to read this. The joy, listen to what he's saying here. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Oh my goodness. What a statement. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. 
For these things, you know, everything is listed out in verses uh, 1 through 14. For these things, our heart has become sick. Our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. It would seem that God is not interested. God is not interested either in our coming with our rose-colored glasses or in our living behind a facade. But rather to come as we are. And in, in this case, what it meant for these people is to mourn the outcome deeply, to just, just have the sense of heartbrokenness for, for what they knew they had done, causing grief to the Lord. It's not, it's not that somehow the, the plans of the great king had been thwarted, but it's rather that surely the heart of their great king had been broken. And they knew that, and they were owning it. They were owning it. And, and, and they also knew that they had brought shame to his name. Um, the, uh, using New Testament language, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, no less true than the calling of, of, of Israel in the Old Testament, the salt had become dull, the light had become dim, the city that was supposed to be on a hill was no different than the ghettos in the valley. And shame was brought to his name. And so they're mourning this, mourning this and repenting their part. And it's interesting to note that this is a communal prayer, by the way. You see plurals throughout uh, Lamentations 5. This is a, a corporate sense. They were together owning this and praying it together, singing it together, lamenting together. And obviously there's individuals making up this body, this, this, this corporate sense, and, and there's varying levels of guilt. Different people have done different things to different degrees. But everyone, no one was blameless. Whether you'd initiated something or just responded to, how you responded to the circumstances, no one was blameless. So again, I think we have to say when the pain won't go, to, go, won't go away, God is calling us to come to him and to come as we are without our excuses and without our defenses. Which of course is not our default, is it? Our default is to come with excuses and is to come with our defenses way up. You think, and it goes back to, to, the, to the very beginning Almost the very, 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 very beginning. Genesis. The fall. Adam and Eve. And we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Every, every one of us. And, 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 and this is, we, we, we're following in their footsteps. And what happens with, with the fall? Of course, Adam takes of the forbidden fruit and eats it. And God comes. And they make fig leaves for themselves. And they try and hide. We're still hiding. We're all of us, every, all the time, making fig leaves to cover ourselves and then hiding. But, but we're doing that still, and God does, the same, He's still doing the same thing, pursuing, asking, where are you? Where are you? Not because He doesn't see and know, but because He wants to draw us out, that we might see and know. Where are you? What's happened? Where's your heart? Where are you? Friends, if, if you're here this morning um, mourning 
mourning your sin, your guilt, and your shame. You need to go to God and speak that to him. That's what he's saying. This is not a time to play. This is not a time for facades. It's a time to own it and speak it. And if it's not really where you are in your heart of hearts, it's, it's more a matter of, of I'm just broken within and broken up within because of a betrayal that I've experienced or a deep disappointment that's just plaguing me or I feel isolated even while I'm surrounded by people that I know who just don't get me or I'm stark naked afraid of what's going to happen in terms of things I can't control. Why are you keeping that in? Tell him. Tell him. He's, he's pleading with us. Take a hard look and come as you are. Come as you are. And the pain won't go away. Come to him. Go to Him. Come as you are. And lastly, speak your mind. Speak your mind. Verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. And almost like a bookend, you get to verses 19 through 22. But you, O Lord, reign forever. This is after everything, and then you have this but offsetting all of that, you might say, or in contrast or in tension to that. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Now, what are we learning here? That the God is not only not interested in our coming with rose-colored glasses or living behind a facade, but he's not interested in our settling and just playing it safe, but rather just you know being willing to be messy and being willing to just, just to say what's on our hearts, and speaking our minds, acknowledging the tension, the tension that we feel, bringing to him our complaint. Yes, bringing to him our complaint. Now, by that, I don't mean complaining about God as though he is somehow, we think, to be incompetent or insensitive, but rather complaining to God. Not complaining about God to God, but complaining just to God. Just like you see in the Psalms. It's here in Lamentations. It's in the Psalms again and again and again. He's paraphrasing. David does this all the time. Lord, this is what you've said. This is what you've said. But this is what I see with this tension between those two things that's irresolvable to the human mind. Tension between these two things. Lord, this is what you've said, and this is what I see. And sometimes the Psalms don't even end with much of a resolution there, except just, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Because I know who you are. Um, so acknowledging the tension, asking for what I'll call restoration, using the words here from this lament, 
for renewal. You see that here in um, uh, verse 21. Uh, asking for this renewal. And of, of the situation, perhaps we could say, but I would not just that. Not just a change of the circumstance. Not just a revolution or a renewal of, of that, but of us. Right? Think back to, think, or I can say forward, to the Lord's Prayer as Jesus, as he gives it to us. He does not begin with, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, he gets there, right? But, but you begin with, hallowed be your name. You begin there. And what I'm saying is simply, we need to be ask, willing to ask for it, not just a renewal of the circumstances, but a renewal of us within the circumstances, as we're responding to the, the mess within, as we're responding to the mess without. Change me. Change it all. Change me. Oh, Lord, and, and by the way, in the midst of this restoration, remember. Remember. You see that there in verse 1, this appeal. Remember, oh, Lord. It's interesting. Uh, through the Scriptures, you see the Lord calling His people to remember, right? Don't you forget. Remember. But you also see cases like this where it's not just the Lord appealing to his people to remember, but the people appealing to the Lord to remember. Lord, your promises are all we have. If we don't have that, where are we? Lord, remember. Remember. And with all of that in mind, all of that done with a deep, profound, abiding assurance of his love, Read verses 21 and 22 one more time. In particular, verse 22, lest you, we misunderstand uh, how the lamentations, and in particular this lament, ends. Believe it or not, it's not on a downer. It's not a downer. Let's read it. Why do you, excuse me, restore us to yourself, verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. You see, this is not actually a statement of doubt. Because if it was, what would be the point? I mean, really, what, what, if that's really where you are at the end, what's the point? It's not a statement of doubt. It's actually a reminder of his love. Verse 22, in many ways, you could put in like in quotation marks. Because the lamenter, the author here, knows that God can't utterly reject us. He can't remain exceedingly angry with us, such as his love for his people. So with that in mind, he knows then somehow, some way, renewal is coming. Redemption is coming. Restoration is coming. Somehow, some way, because of his abiding love for us. The pain won't go away. With that in mind, then, we go to God. Because we know no matter how awful it may look, no matter how bad we may feel, we know He still yet loves us. God wants us to be honest and real with Him. Um, some of you may know, uh, and I may have told this story, I can't remember. Um, years and years ago, this is pre-seminary, uh, Sarah and I worked in a in a uh, 
bank building, and by that I don't mean a local branch. I mean it was a, a headquarters or many floors and many offices and lots of departments. And of course, in a situation like that, you've got one whole department devoted just towards inner office mail, right? I mean it's their job; it's just to deliver the mail between the departments so people are are, are, are connecting and all of that, and um, all the documents that are flowing in it. And there was this one guy, and I, I never knew his name. His name I just we just knew him as the mail guy, and, and the mail guy. No matter where you saw him, no matter what season of the year it was, no matter what day it was, no matter what time of the day it was, he would always, I was going to say greet, I'll just say meet, meet you with the question, how you doing? How you doing? Which you might think, well, that's, that's kind of nice. Yeah. I mean, you get, it's kind of friendly. It's kind of a cold, cruel world. It's a bank. You know, it's all about money. It's all about bottom lines. you got this one person he seems to be interested in. <laughs> he would never let you answer the question. He would answer it for you. How you doing within a two, three second lag? Good, good. It's like, what happened here? I, I was kind of in a foul mood one day. It does happen. Ask my family. I was in a foul mood one day. I'd had enough of this, these shenanigans. And I decided to try a little experiment. So he meets, greets, whatever you want to call it. How you doing? I said, terrible! We're the only ones in the elevator. What do, you, what do you think his response was? Good, good. We do that with each other. And we do it with God. Good, good. That's how you're doing? Yeah. The funny thing is about these, this pain that gets in there and makes a home. It's like the house guest that won't go away. The pain that just lasts and lingers. The Lamentations 5 kind of pain. It has a nasty way of making us real. If you let it. That's, I think, partly the Lord's intention. He's intent on making us real. And this has a nasty way of, of, of I don't know, could I sign on for a seminar instead? But it has a way of revealing our hearts. You put enough pressure on any of us for long enough. You know, the weight on you, long enough, hard enough. Cracks begin to come out, right? And stuff, what, what happens after that? Stuff starts to leak out. The stuff that was down in here that you didn't even know was there. You put enough pressure on for long enough, it sounds like that, actually. It comes out like, 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 like a, a boil, you know, it's been lanced. Which then has the effect of doing what? When you know what's in you, if you take it to the next step, it'll drive you into Jesus' arms. Help me. It reveals our hearts, and in His grace, it can perfect them as well. And the pain won't go away. We're to go to God. How? Taking a hard look, coming as we are, and speaking our mind. But there's another way, and I want to end with this. There's another way to ask the question, because it's not just a matter of, well, you know, can you give me kind of a strategy? How do I do this? You know, give me a list, top three. Yeah, great. All right, I'm good. But, um... No, really, how? 
how are we able to come to God in that pain? How are we able to? What makes it possible? There's only one answer to that question, folks. Christ. The finished work of Christ. Verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. It's through the one who entered into this pain and all that befell him, you might say, and all the disgrace, which was all ours, that he took upon himself. Put it this way, everything, and it was horrible, it really was, what happened there in Jerusalem. Some would say it, make, it really far eclipses everything that you want to read about and think about and dwell on with the Holocaust. What happened here was actually worse. A lot of ancient historians will tell you that. Um, as awful as all of that was, that is ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, but a preview and a glimpse of what Jesus underwent years later. A greater exile, a greater siege, and a greater lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think in terms of movie trailers, okay? In terms of like a glimpse, like a preview, right? And, and you know, the holiday season is coming. And of course, that's one of the big pushes during the year for the big, big films. And so some of you may have seen some of these. I mean, we've got the Exodus movies, like, you know, Batman. Anyway, it's another story. Um, another Night in the Museum uh, installment, uh, another Hunger Games installment, and then the third of the three Hobbit films, right? And, and so what, what these, every one of these trailers, you can you know, see them on the TV or go online or go see a movie today or tomorrow or whatever and you'll see them. Okay, what are they for? They're to give you a sense, you know, the short little clip is meant to give you a sense of the full film that's coming. It's also meant to whet your appetite though, right? For coming attractions. Well, it's something like that here. As great and significant as these events were, they're actually pointing to greater and more significant events to come. This exile pointing towards another. This lament pointing towards, preparing us for another. One who was coming, who was determined to save a people for himself, determined to take upon their disgrace on him out of his love for them. So how do we come to God with our pain? Jesus. That's the who to the how. You might be saying, well, but it sounds like you're talking about a relationship with God with all, for all practical purposes. Well, yeah, exactly. You got it. When the pain just won't go away, come to him. Come to him, to the one who has promised to one day make all things new, and, when, and then the pain will have gone away. Come to him now, who's with you now, and he will never, by the way, go away. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you'd help us. Help us to... Uh, hear this lament. We ask that you would help us to really um, envision, feel the, the horror and the heartbreak of the events such as we read in 
in the, uh, the, the Chronicles and Jeremiah and um, Kings and the wonder of all that this is ultimately about. Um, and, and who this is ultimately about. Not, not a siege. So this is not really about a siege and a defeat, but about a rescue and hope. And God, I, we pray for those of us here, and, and maybe it's us even as we're praying, undergoing chronic pain, pain that just has made a home. And maybe it is of a physical kind. Pray for their endurance for this season, however long it may prove to be. Tired of the aches, tired of the disease, tired of the doctors. And some here are undergoing chronic emotional pain. A temptation that just keeps coming and that they keep falling into a trap, a fear. Relational pain. A distance, maybe literal, maybe figurative. A concern for someone that's so close and near and dear. Where maybe it's not us that's really in the in the center of that chronic pain, but we're so close to it, we're still suffering with that person. Oh God, have mercy on us. Help us to see our need to come to you and the invita- hear the invitation to come to you and know the necessity of coming to you and how it's possible, how it could be because of our Savior.